Now, despite the warning, has anybody attempted to wear shorts and flip-flops today? Well, let me be clear. I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. In fact, I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> but if I told you, if I told you that Jesus was coming back in 2014 and somehow you knew it to be true, how would that news affect your life? Beginning of the year, resolutions have been made, most have been broken. But if you knew for a certainty that Jesus was returning this year, what resolutions would you now make? <clears throat> How would you live your life if you knew this year was to be your last? <laughs> I suppose there are lots of things that you could do. Remember those bucket lists you've been making for years, you could go ahead and start on them. Some of you would go bungee jumping or hang gliding. Some of you would go skydiving, it's on my list, or scuba diving. Some of you would, you'd probably adjust your diet significantly. You'd go ahead and eat the double Whopper with cheese <laughs> because a year isn't enough time for plaque to sneak up on you. Some of you would would quit exercising altogether. After all, what difference would it make now? Don't even like it. It's no longer necessary to try and eke out those extra few months or years at the end of life. Some of you would focus on financial things. All that money that you have been putting away for retirement, might as well cash it all in and live for the moment. Quit your job. Take those um, trips that you've always wanted to take, travel to Europe or to the South Pacific. And in fact, I would encourage you to go ahead and take out some huge loans. You won't have to pay them back anyway. <laughs> buy the Maserati or the Lamborghini you've always dreamed about. Why not buy both? He said, nah, Scott, my focus wouldn't be on a bucket list or material stuff. My focus would be relational. I would spend lots of time with my family and, and friends. After all, when it's all been said and done, relationships are all that matter. We don't get to take all that stuff with us. So there are, there are some estranged relationships I'd seek to mend. Makes me stop to wonder, why don't you, why don't you do that now? Or, or maybe some good relationships I'd seek to deepen. Some of you would finally get the courage to ask the girl out. Some of you... Remembering what Jesus said about no marriage in heaven would get married really fast. What would you do if you knew for a certainty that Jesus was coming back this year? Because you understand he can. Okay, regardless of your eschatological position, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or no-trib, however you view the future, I think we can all agree that Jesus is coming back. What if somehow you knew the end, however that looks for you in your eschatology, the end was to begin, how would you now then live? Would you make some changes? 
Could we for a, a moment ask, answer the question spiritually? How would your spiritual life be affected? Last week, I challenged us to intentionally, intentionally recommit ourselves to Christ, to His Word, and to His people this year. <laughs> would you maybe do that now, now that you know that He's coming back? I mean, wouldn't you want to be found faithful? I mean, what better place would there be than for Jesus to show up and you're worshiping Him? I mean, you're reading, you're reading His Word. Hey, Jesus, just spend a little time in the Bible. Maybe you'd be serving with his people. What would you do differently regarding your faith if you knew? Several years ago, at, at, at a New Year's time, I shared with you about a man named Jonathan Edwards, not the one in our church, although I, when I first moved here and found out that Randy and Margaret had a son that they named Jonathan Edwards, uh, I really like them. Reared in the home of a pastor, Edwards then set his heart early to the task of ministry. He knew Greek, Hebrew, and Latin by the time he was 12. It's kind of irritating. <laughs> Graduated from Yale with a degree in divinity before his 17th birthday. He was preaching in a New York church. When he was 19, he spent most of his years pastoring a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. As you may know from your history books, God used Jonathan Edwards and others like uh, Wesley and, and Whitfield to, to revive the church throughout uh, the new colonies in what has been called the, the Great Awakening. Most of you just know him as the guy that wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What I want you to remember about Edwards this morning is this. Over the course of his 19th year, before his 20th birthday, he wrote 70 resolutions by which he sought to govern his life. And by the way, they were not published in a book. They were found in his diary after his death. I say that because they weren't written to impress anybody. They weren't posted on a website. They were between him and God. And he committed to read through them once a week. I guess there was no time for TV. The interesting, he lived in the 1800s, or 1700s. Interesting, they, they really had little to do, his, these resolutions, with weight gain or loss, vices to forsake, books to read, places to visit, or bucket lists. Listen to some of them. Number one, now remember, the guy's 19. Resolve to do whatever I think to be most for God's glory. Wow. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I wish I had done when I come to die. When I die, I want to live like I, I want to, I want to know that I live like I wanted to live. Number 19, don't worry, I'm not reading all 70. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it to it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. In other words, in everything that I do, I keep the second coming of Christ right before me, right before my mind. He could come back like now. Number 20, 
Resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Okay, like I just threw that one in there so you can feel good about your resolution. He actually did have one about diet. He, he, he kept track of the foods that he ate because he wanted to know which ones invigorated him and which one made him lethargic. Guess which ones he ate. I'm thinking no Big Macs. Number 28. Here's his resolution on Bible reading. Resolve to study the scripture so that steadily, constantly, and frequently, so steadily, constantly, and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the saint. I don't just want to read the Bible, I want to grow in it. I want to just check a box. Number 50, resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge what have been best and most prudent when I come into the future. Well, the guy's 19 and he's thinking about the future exactly. Last one, number 52. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives all over again. I, if I had it to do all over again, I serve Jesus every day of my life. You don't, big trouble. Resolved that I will live just so as I think can think I shall wish I had done supposing I lived to an old age. In other words, I don't want to be one of those guys who comes to the end of my life and, and looks back and says, man, I wish I had it to do over. I'd sure change a lot of things. Instead, why not change them now? Why not live in such a way that when you come to the end of your life, you can look back and say, largely, that's what I intended. If you knew Jesus were coming back in 2014, how would it affect your resolutions? See, Edwards were a little bit different than the ones that we typically make this time of the year. As I said, there are 70 of them. You can Google them. You will be both uh, encouraged and and challenged. I I shared them because many of them had this forward look. At 19, he was looking forward to a city whose builder and and architect was God. He didn't live for the moment, trying to grab all the gusto in this life. He lived for the life to come. He often thought about the future. In fact, one of them, if I remember it correctly, was something like this. I will resolve, I will think often of, of my death and the circumstances attending it. I will think of the pleasures of heaven and the torments of hell. Think that changed the way that he viewed life? If you knew Jesus were coming back this year, how would it change yours? Good resolutions. As I read them, somewhat general. I mean, it's one thing to say, I will do everything to the glory of God. Sounds a little bit like Paul in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Sounds good, but it's another thing to live that stuff out. And and what does that actually look like? What specifically would you change? Listen to me. What specifically would you change if this were the last hour before the last trump? Would you fall on your faces? Would you have sung just a little more heartily? 
Would you have prayed a little more passionately? Is there someone you'd call and, and say, you have to believe Jesus is coming back? What would you change if you knew Jesus was coming this year? I think in addition to a greater commitment to God's Word, that is reading and growing in it, I think we would show a greater devotion to prayer and a greater urgency to tell others that Jesus is coming. He's coming. That's what Paul says in our text today in Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. Look at it with me. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Forward look. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As Paul gets to the end, near the end of this letter to Colossians, he looks forward. Now we know that he has the future in mind, the, the coming of Christ, because he typically uses lots of words in these verses referring to watchful or alert prayer to remind his readers, you need to be watching, you need to be alert because Jesus is coming back. Be alert to what is going on around you spiritually. Look around and see what God is doing in his redemptive plan. And we must be ready at all times for his at any moment return. Okay, many of us know that. We understand that Jesus is coming back. Okay, I mean, it's not too, you don't have to be smart to figure out that it's closer now than it's ever been before. And now it's even closer. Okay, I got that. And most of us know that we should live with an expectant eye toward the sky. But do we? Do we live as if this hour could be the last before the last trump. And, and if, if so, what do we do? Do we, just, do we just put on white rapture robes like some did in the 1800s and go up to the roof to make Jesus' trip here a little easier? The truth is, in our culture, we often... Let's be honest, we go to the other extreme. We seldom, if ever, think that Jesus is coming. We can become so distracted by all that this life has to offer. It is, after all, why we cling to it so ferociously. It is why we, we make resolutions to watch what we eat and, and to exercise. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? You know, like last week, I jumped on my trainer. That's the thing that holds my bicycle, and I've been pedaling this week. But it's January 5th. I'm almost done with that. <laughs> but we should be good stewards of this body that God has given to us. I'm all for that. Here's my question. To what end? 
For whom? Just to live longer? For who? I have never, I have never read any of Paul's 13 letters and come away thinking that guy was an exercise maniac. I think he mentions, I think this is right, that he mentions one time something about exercise. He says, physical exercise is of some value. But listen to this. Godliness is of, value, of greater value, not only in this life, but the life to come. Rather, I've come away reading Paul's letters thinking, man, he gave his body to be beaten, starved, abused, and eventually martyred for the cause of Christ because he really believed this stuff. And Jesus is coming back. And we are to live our lives as if we really believe it. Scripture indicates that we entered the last days at the um, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. God has accomplished his purposes for creation and humanity through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. He is fulfilling his promises, promises he made way back in the Garden of Eden, promises he made to Abraham. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, and Abraham had a descendant. His name was Jesus. And, and, and the world is being blessed through him. Jesus is building his church. The glorious end is what Await. So what then do we do until then? Well, Paul tells us or gives us three commands in this passage. First, devote yourselves to prayer. Be people of prayer. Second, conduct yourselves with wisdom. And, and then third, speak with salty grace. Here are some New Year's resolutions that I'm just going to share with you for your consideration. Starting with, devote yourselves to prayer. A, a growing, committed believer is one who is passionate about God's Word. We talked about that last week. And one who is devoted to prayer. The word devoted is in the present tense, which speaks of this ongoing commitment. And, and, and we're told, uh, and it means to be devoted to or to persist in, persist in prayer. In other places, we're told that we should persevere in prayer and not give up. We should pray without ceasing. In other words, for for believers, prayer ought to be part of our every moment lives. It should be as natural to us as breathing. Now, I find it rather interesting that Paul and others would give us a command to persist in prayer. Doesn't that seem rather obvious for us as followers of Jesus Christ that we would actually spend time with him in prayer? But we know why he commands it, don't we? Prayer is hard work, and it takes an intentional, cognitive commitment, and it takes time. And if you don't intentionally devote yourselves to it, you won't, and the days will slip into weeks, won't it? Paul then Having told us to devote ourselves to prayer, he doesn't just leave us kind of dangling there. He gives us a couple of participles. Remember those ing words to talk about this devoted prayer. First, he says, uh, "We pray, keeping alert." There's the ing word, keeping alert with thanksgiving. The idea of 
Keeping alert is watchfulness. Again, when he and other New Testament authors use this particular word, it, it, it has this eschatological, this forward-looking, this future ring to it. I want you to pray looking for Christ and his kingdom. It's coming. Keep alert. Look around. For example, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus told his disciples over and over, be alert. I'm coming. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells his readers in the context of the second coming, be alert, don't fall asleep, he's coming. And I think the church has largely fallen asleep. And I'm saying to us this morning, wake up, be alert, Jesus is coming. I know it's been a couple thousand years since Jesus ascended and, and we enter those last days. But we know, don't we, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, which means with God time is not relevant. But that verse, by the way, in its context in 2 Peter chapter 3 is talking about Jesus coming back. It doesn't matter that it's been a while since Jesus made the promise of his return. Christ is coming back. And if we believed it, it would affect the way that we live our lives. Maybe, just maybe, just suggesting for your consideration that we might spend as much time in prayer as in the weight room. Just suggesting. And when we do, we'll be thankful. Why? Because when Christ returns, he returns for us. Forgiven, redeemed, saved, sanctified people because of his work on the cross. We, we, do you understand we actually get, get to look forward to his return? Not in fear, but in joyful, hopeful expectation, and it makes us grateful. It makes us eternally thankful. So keep, uh, so pray, keeping alert. That's the first participle, expectant, thankful prayer. Verse three, pray, praying, that's the second participle, at the same time for us as well. Quite common for Paul to ask for prayer from his churches. But for what does he ask them to pray? Very interesting. We've noted this before. He's in prison, but he does not ask them to pray for his deliverance or for his safety, for his health or his prosperity. He asks them to pray for the prosperity of the gospel. Pray for, for us. It's likely him and, and Timothy, maybe some other traveling companions, pray for us that God will open a door. A prison door? No. Didn't care about the prison door. Help me get out of here? No. Pray for an open door for the Word. Not for me. For the Word. What's the Word? He tells us so that we might speak forth the mystery of Christ. Open a door for the gospel. I want to speak the mystery of Christ. In this book, We've seen that the mystery of Christ is simply this. He uses the word a little bit differently in different nuances in different books, but this one is this. Here it is. Christ in you, the hope. The hope of glory. There's that future look. He's our hope. He, we're looking to our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you? When's the last time you thought about the second coming? He's our coming king. 
He is the hope of future glory. We proclaim him so that we may present every person complete future look in Christ. Paul said some of the same words in Ephesians. With all prayer, thank you, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And and with this in view, be on the alert. There's that word. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me to the opening of my mouth. Will you just pray for me that I open my mouth? I've always kind of thought of Paul as a guy who, who, who never kept his mouth shut. Pray that I will open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Again, amazing, no prayer for deliverance, prayer for gospel boldness right where I am, right where God has me. I'm in prison because I preach the gospel. So I don't want to keep silent about that which got me here. I want to speak as I ought to speak. But people get offended. They don't like it. They really want to, I want to speak as I ought to speak. Even though I've been in prison for preaching it, you can't stop the gospel. Doors, he says, are still being opened. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he actually said it this way. During his final imprisonment, by the way, which ended in his execution, okay? No deliverance there. (laughs) For which gospel, that's what he's talking about, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You can't chain it. Paul is, what, what I'm asking you to pray is that I be delivered Not that I be delivered from prison, but that I may even more boldly proclaim the word of the mystery of Christ. In fact, verse 4, pray that I can make the gospel clear in the way that I speak. Don't only pray for opportunity. Don't only pray for the door to be open. I want to proclaim this word about Christ in a clear and compelling way so that people will respond in faith to what Jesus has done. This is my prayer. Paul is acutely aware of the promised coming of Christ and all that awaits his followers. So Paul's primary goal, his primary resolution, his primary request, pray that this door will be open for me to speak the truth of the gospel of Christ. Pray that I will speak it clearly as I ought to speak. And so, if Jesus were coming in 2014 and you knew it, don't you think, I'm just just saying, don't you think that you would be more devoted to prayer? And if you knew he were coming this year, and he can, don't you think that your primary concern would be the proclamation of the gospel? Here, think of it this way. Aren't there people you know in your lives who need to know? God, open your mouth. Not all that Paul commanded us to do is praying for others. <laughs> Effectiveness in the gospel, that's not just what we do. He commanded us to live the gospel as well. Point two, verse five, these go very quickly. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Conduct yourselves, that word we've seen Paul use over and over, it's literally the word live. Live in such a way that you are expressing wisdom. But what is this 
wisdom that we live with. He's used this word wisdom over and over. In chapter 1, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you know how you ought to walk. All right? So this, this, this wisdom informs our walk. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete. So this wisdom completes us. It matures us. But then he says that the word of Christ richly, the word about Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. So this wisdom is this word about Christ. Put all of that together. Oh, I forgot verse 3. That's an important one. <laughs> like, in whom Christ, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And so this wisdom are the treasures of Christ. Okay? So you put all that together, and wisdom speaks of this wisdom or knowledge concerning Christ, of knowing him, of walking in him, of speaking and teaching about him, of admonishing each other concerning him, of being made mature or complete in him, because all the treasures of life and, and eternity are to be found in Christ. So what, what that means is to live your lives oriented toward Christ and his gospel toward outsiders. Conduct yourselves with the wisdom of Christ and his gospel. Having been made new people in Christ, we are now enabled to apply Christ-centered values in every area of life to include those outsiders that we hang out with. And outsiders is not meant to be a negative term. It's simply speaking of those outside the gospel, outside the church, those who have not yet believed. But we don't want them to remain outsiders. It's not us and them. We want them to become with us insiders. And so we make the most of the opportunity. What opportunity? That word is time. We make the most of time. In fact, the old translation used to have it. We redeem the time. We buy back time. We do everything that we can do to make the most to tell people about Christ. Because if we really believe that Jesus is coming back, in fact, if it's possible that Jesus could come back in 2014, don't you think that your proclamation of the gospel would be more urgent? Making the most of every opportunity. Time is short. Believe the gospel. Time is short. Believe the gospel. Brings us to our last point, verse 6. Speak. As you're sharing the gospel, speak with salty grace. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to every person. Lots of truth there very quickly. Your speech, when you talk with outsiders, when you talk with unbelievers, makes sure that your speech, that is what comes out of your mouth, you understand that in order for people to believe the gospel, they've got to hear the gospel. So make sure that what comes out of your mouth is with grace. Now what does that mean? Some suggest it just means gracious. And I know and you know some Christians who could learn just to, to be a little bit more gracious. That, 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 that's true. But more likely, given the context, Paul means speak of the grace of Christ when you speak. We should speak regularly, frequently, passionately of the grace of Christ that has been made available to sinners. Speak it. No one's going to become a Christian. I've said this a million times. No one's going to become a Christian because you're a good person. No one's going to become a Christian because you're a good Christian. 
They're going to become a Christian the same way that you became a Christian, and that's through the gospel which must be spoken. When you speak it, speak it, make it salty. What does that mean? Salty like a sailor. You're going to hell. No, not exactly, although that's true. The idea is to make your speech about the gospel savoring, tasteful, compelling, attractive, desirable. So we speak words of compelling grace to unbelievers around us, making the most of every opportunity because Christ is coming back and we want those outsiders to become insiders with us. And if you don't, you're dead. Lastly, Paul says, watch your speech so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The implication is as we share, people are different and we need to know how to speak to each person. That means we need to be able to handle objections and challenges and, and, and problems and, and, and questions. So, so be good apologists. But listen, in all of our apologetics, the answer is ultimately Christ and His gospel. So, how would your lifestyle change if you knew that Jesus was coming back in 2014? I imagine that some of us would have to make some significant changes. Truth is, whether 2014 or beyond, Jesus is coming back. Make a resolution to, to think often of the coming of Christ or your death, whichever comes first, and live accordingly. We are to devote ourselves to watchful, alert, skyward-glancing prayer. We are to conduct ourselves with Christ-exalting, gospel-centered wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every single opportunity that we have. Why do you think you're here? We are to make sure that our speech is filled with the gospel of grace, seasoned with salt. Make it compelling. Make it desirable. But you must speak it. Let's pray. Father, we've come to the beginning of a new year as a church. We have opportunity to reflect uh, as, as we have done, as we're doing, but also to commit, to commit to be men and women, children of the Word, and to be people who are devoted to prayer, people who are alert, awake, not sleeping, not distracted by things of this life but to be people who are passionate about the gospel, passionate about seeing outsiders become insiders with us. Help us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.